there's just an unfortunate hooligan aspect to kind of any protest, and there are going to be people who are going to break windows and spray paint. And the last two hours of last night, from five to seven, which all most all the nonviolent protesters had already left, and the streets were left over to the violent people. Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack. Let them go! Let them go! Let them go! Let them go! Let them One of the most important tools we have used to protect the American people is the Patriot Act. The Patriot Act closed dangerous gaps in America's law enforcement and intelligence capabilities, gaps the terrorists exploited when they attacked us on September the 11th. Hi, and welcome back to Belligan by the long 1990s. So in this, the last instalment of this episode and the last instalment for this season, Emma and I are going to ask that question, did the 90s ever really end or did they ever leave us? To kick things off, I just wanted to briefly revisit Francis Fukuyama and his ideas about the end of history, which is where we started this exploration of the 1990s and what they mean today. And just to remind anyone who's listening, Francis Fukuyama argued in 1989 that the end of history was approaching with the end of the Cold War. And that meant that we were, we were entering a decade and indeed a future of really triumph for liberalism, for capitalism, and for a world that was increasingly moulded in, the, in the, the ideal image of the United States. By the end of the 1990s, and as we came into the next decade, which, as we mentioned in the last instalment, was very much dominated by the events of September 11th, 2001, there were quite a different set of ideas that were coming to prominence about what the big battles of the future would be about and what they would look like. So we're going to start this episode by revisiting the ideas of Samuel Huntington, who said that what we were seeing was not the end of history, but the clash of civilizations. That's right, he did. So Samuel Huntington is actually in 1993. He's responding directly to Francis Fukuyama, who incidentally had been his student. So Huntington is a, a professor of political science at Harvard. So Huntington gave this lecture and then wrote an article in Foreign Affairs in 1993 that he called The Clash of Civilizations. And of course, he then turned that into a book. So we're we're following a very familiar path. Um, The Clash of Civilizations and the Remaking of World Order was published in 1996. And and, and turning things into books is something that Chloe and I might come back to a bit later. Um, But in this book, Huntington, um, oh, in his, his article and then in his book, Huntington, as Chloe said, effectively argue that that history is not over. It was his argument that there would be continuing conflict in the world order, that in fact the Cold War was a kind of aberration and that what we would see is a return to the kind of, I suppose, natural state of the world order, which is a clash between civilizations. So, So arguments, fights, wars are not primarily ideological or primarily economic, according to Huntington. They're about culture. So he's arguing that nature, nation states are still kind of the most important actors in, in world affair, but the great clashes, the great conflicts will be over culture and between civilizations. And 9-11, to a certain cast of mind, seemed to play this out perfectly. So what happened after 9-11, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Emma, is that Huntington's ideas, which had been, you know, had been a critique of Fukuyama, they were taken up in, they were taken up with great force and argued all over the place, especially by neoconservative commentators. 
Absolutely. I think I think to a lot of people, um, Huntington seemed to have predicted exactly what would happen in this in this clash between culture, a clash between civilizations. And I, I suppose the the pretty obvious problems with this is that that argument is extremely reductive. You know, it assumes that culture is so you know so called culture is a static thing that doesn't change. And that argument about the clash of civilization allowed people, um, some in bad faith and, and some not, I think, to argue that, you know, they, this other civilization, is irredeemably different to us, to our civilization, particularly Western civilization. Um, meaning that reconciliation is not possible. You know, a clash means that there's no way to overcome this kind of inherent cultural difference between these civilizations. So Huntington really, you know, again, whether he intended to or not, really plays into these post 9-11 arguments about the nature of the world order. So I guess what we're seeing here is that Fukuyama's thesis, which had been translated into the lib- what we're calling the liberal complacency, which we've described over this past season of the podcast, that gets replaced by this thesis of unending, unending conflict and violence between the West and the rest. And I think, you know, I'd hope that it's not... I probably don't need to spell it out, that the West is very much coded as a, as a, as a racialized other, which is concentrated on the Muslim nations of the world. So I think it's it's interesting because we talk a lot about neoconservatives who are aligned with the Bush administration in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 and the influence that they had. But I guess nowadays what we're seeing is this really, I guess, kind of a bipartisan assertion by the powerful and particularly by powerful old white men of liberalism. And I'm interested in how that that change came about? How do we go from neoconservatism to this very strident defense of liberalism that we're seeing today? Well, I mean, I think like a lot of things we've talked about in this in this series, Chloe, it ha- this has a longer history, of course, than the, the 1990s. But particularly post-September 11, I think what we see is the, you know, theses, arguments like Huntington's about the clash of civilizations come to prominence, this idea about the kind of irredeemable differences between cultures and what happens post 9-11 because of the cataclysmic shock of that is that liberals either don't want to or don't feel like they can challenge these arguments about the kind of existential threats to the United States and so what happens I think is we see this kind of bleeding between neoconservative approaches to the world order and liberal approaches to the world order so we get to a point where particularly in the United States, particularly with the, you know, the most powerful country in the world that is kind of shaping world affairs, it becomes really difficult to distinguish then between neoconservative approaches to international affairs and the liberal approach to international affairs, which I think is why we kind of have this, partly at least, why we have this kind of mess that we're in today. And and a lot of that stems, I think, from, Chloe, you mentioned, you know, that this idea of Western civilization is is kind of coded, essentially coded racism. It's about white civilization against the rest. And part of that beca- is because I think so much of this debate, you know, in the Bush administration, but also in the kind of intellectual circles of the United States, is just old white guys from a very small pool, you know, hunting, both Huntington and Fukuyama come out of Harvard political science, it's just them talking to each other, debating, you know, who loves America more and who hates America more. And it, and it's people like Christopher Hitchens, even Noam Chomsky, who, who were just kind of fighting it out amongst themselves and dictating the terms of the debate. And I think it's, I think it's also really interesting to think about those 20 years of basically the co-option 
of liberalism by the right, by what are what are essential, I would say essentially right wing talking points. It kind of when you think of, when you think about that, and then you reflect back on the nineties, it kind of hints, I think, at the at the actual the ideological weakness and the weakness of liberalism in the nineties, and that while it was you know seemingly all powerful and it was you know the dominant ideology, the dominant political program of the nineties it was actually kind of ready to be swept away at the at the first provocation and do you think maybe that's that's what's happening now chloe i well i'm i'm going to editorialize here slightly and say i hope that's what's happening now i don't know if it actually is so who else is talking about this because i know that one thing we've been really interested in all through this series of the podcast is who were the alternative voices who were perhaps being um being sidelined or suffocated in public discourse when talking about these events in the 1990s and now the early 2000s i think for me as as is always the case that you're right chloe these kind of old white guys overshadow the, the i think the really interesting discussions that that are happening kind of on the sidelines and for me i think there's nobody more um i guess emblematic of that than Arundhati Roy, who who writes beautifully about 9-11 um, in particular, and we can we can link to that. Um, but I think is it this kind of extraordinary intellectual heavyweight, both at the time and today, who is completely overshadowed by people like Huntington and and the convenient arguments that they give to powerful people in the Bush administration, just as an example. Em, I think it's really interesting that you bring up Arundhati Roy because I've been thinking about some of Arundhati Roy's recent writings about free speech and the coronavirus pandemic and the crisis just this morning, I think from quite a different direction. On the, you know, these neoconservatives we've been talking about, the proponents of the clash of civilizations theory, who have now today sort of started dressing themselves up as defenders of free speech and liberalism. I think it's really interesting to consider those arguments in light of the 1990s and what they would have experienced in the 1990s, because what we're talking about are really a sort of the insiders of the American political class. So we're talking about, you know, prominent journalists, newsmakers, uh, people who've been involved in the State Department for decades and people who really, I guess, kind of emerged in the 1990s. Today, they're making arguments about liberalism and about free speech that I think rest on a, an illusion about what free speech is. They talk about things like, you know, untrammeled free speech and the need to defend free speech at all costs as if they haven't actually always throughout their, their, their long careers been, I guess, guaranteed and supported by editorial policies, by professional structures, by political favoritism that elevates their speech in ways that, you know, probably I think is goes beyond their actual merit. So I think there's there's a really there's a really kind of gross hypocrisy about the way that these white blokes in suits, mostly white blokes in suits who read The Economist, they act like defenders of, of free speech when the reality is that in the West, that speech and their prominence has very much been adjudicated and its limits laid down within their professional networks. You know, the number of people we've spoken about on this podcast who went to Yale. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yale has come up probably more than I would like. Who've, you know, and we've, who've worked at the New York Times, who've worked in political institutions and for lobbyists and for powerful corporations. Because they've never been... These people 
have never been repressed and they're not being repressed today. It's just that the structures that they inhabit are being exposed for what they are, which is, you know, basically, I guess they're they're the professional structures that are elevating their voices beyond all that they deserve. That's that's absolutely right, and I think maybe part of what we're seeing in the in the kind of, I guess, reaction to this uh, on the part of these people who have basically arbitrated the the arguments that we're able to have about politics, is a, a yearning, I suppose, for the 1990s and the triumph of liberalism and liberal argument when they, I, I suppose, felt they had won the argument and, and could talk about it at length and be be the only voices, because I think what we've talked about as sort of at length, Chloe, is that the 1990s was dominated completely by that kind of liberal triumphalism. And and again, what we're seeing now is, is kind of old blokes being upset that they're not winning the argument anymore and that they're not the only voices. And I think that's the point at which the 1990s, in terms of opinion formation and this kind of, I guess, intellectual, you know, the, the dominant intellectuals and voices of our time, the 1990s, looking at it, enables us to kind of recast that because what we're seeing is not that these people are particularly beleaguered in any way, which is the way that they act. It's that their positions, you know, the, the triumphal positions of the 1990s are finally being being challenged. I guess which which raises the, the obvious question of, of who who is challenging these ideas? You know, who else should we be listening to? Well, I think Arundhati Roy is a perfect example of someone who we should be listening to. And I think, you know, that was that was a bit of a rant and a bit of a ramble, but that's very much an effect of these thoughts having only started to come together this morning when I happened to be listening to an interview on a podcast with the writer Pankaj Mishra, who was talking about Arundhati Roy's activism for free speech in India. I think that the fact that this is how I've come to these thoughts, one that indicates something about the people who we should be listening to, who are the people who, who have been on the margins of this conversation for a long time, but who are you know, intellectually eminent in their own right. It also, it also reflects the fact that this is a problem of the structures of opinion and newsmaking. And probably also the fact that, you know, that opinion and even the, the field of podcasts in which we're, we're, which we're stepping into is dominated by voices that aren't so dissimilar to ours. Which, which I think raises another um, question and, and something else that we wanted to talk about in this final instalment, Chloe, which is to address what we didn't talk about, what we haven't talked about in this series on the 1990s. Yeah, and I think that... Um, there are a lot of things we didn't talk about and I guess kind of our, our rule of thumb in deciding what we would speak about in this podcast is what subjects could we talk about with any degree of confidence and authority and there are a lot of things that we couldn't and I think that's probably is probably quite um, in some ways a poor reflection on you know our, our positions coming into this podcast as you know middle class white ladies who are obsessed with the west but yeah i think that absolutely one thing if i were to do this again i would want to speak to someone about asian tiger economies and the rise of china in the 1990s quite simply because they were huge events in the 90s they were huge influential events um i'm thinking about things like the asian stock market crash in the late 90s um and also they are hugely relevant today. I don't think you really should have a political conversation these days that doesn't in some way include China. That's absolutely true. And I think, you know, to go back to our earlier conversation, I think the the way, particularly in Australia, the way that we talk about China is still completely dominated by Huntington's thesis of the clash of civilizations. And, and that is something that we absolutely need, need to move beyond. 
Um, I think one of the other things that we didn't talk about at length, Chloe, was um, kind of weirdly, because we are both extremely online, the internet. You know, we didn't talk about the dot-com boom of the 90s um, and the and the way that the internet of the 1990s has shaped today, the internet of today. I think, yeah, I think we've definitely touched on it and it's, been, it's something that we've tried to thread through the podcast, but I think you're absolutely right that that is, it's a subject in and of itself and, again, one that is hugely pertinent to today. And I think that, you know, the other thing that maybe we haven't covered, we, we have spoken a lot, I think, about the violence of the 1990s and how it wasn't a decade of peace as it, as it is often remembered. But the thing that we didn't really talk about in detail were the so-called peace processes of the 1990s. So I'm thinking about the end of apartheid in South Africa, um, the peace processes, many failed peace processes in the Middle East, and also things like the Good Friday Agreement, which, which instituted a peace of sorts in, in Northern Ireland. And speaking of Ireland, you know, one of the things I, I wish we could have talked about is uh, talked about a little bit more. You know, I think we talked about popular culture more than we intended um, at the outset of this, Chloe. But I would have loved to have um, spoken more about women in music, particularly, particularly. Um, you know, I'm thinking bands like the Cranberries. Um, and also, of course, for me, um, Alanis Morissette, who has gone on, I think, a, a pretty extraordinary journey since the 1990s and in so many ways, I think, was ahead of her time in, in the issues that she was singing about and in her deployment of, of women's anger. And I guess that's the other, you know, that's the other grounds on which we've kind of included or excluded things, which is uh, self-indulgence. So we've definitely had our moments talking about, um, on my part, talking about Hugh Grant and Colin Firth and Emma talking about Leonardo DiCaprio. I think we kind of decided that Alanis Morissette might be a bridge too far. The other the other topic that I think could have been massively self-indulgent, but I think there would have been a case for including in the podcast, is footy and the AFL in the 90s. Uh, not just because it was a it was a glorious decade for my beloved, well, less beloved these days, Adelaide Crows. And of course, the decade did begin with a with a Collingwood premiership. But uh, the Collingwood Football Club is not something that I am enjoying talking about at the moment at all. Um, but I think I guess the footy kind of bring, brings me this sort of in a silly way to a to another question, Chloe, which is about whether the nineteen nineties really ended because in footy in particular I think we've seen a bit of a yearning for the style of football of the 1990s you know and and questions about whether that kind of football is is ever coming back but you know more broadly and I guess culturally you can also argue that even for footy the 1990s isn't over because we still have commentators and players from the 1990s dominating discussions but we also I think are still um, I suppose grappling with issues of the 1990s in footy, which includes racism, you know, so iconic moment where Nicky Winmar um, pointed to himself at Victoria Park, you know, in the, at the home of Collingwood to, to highlight the egregious racism in the AFL. You know, that's something that the AFL is still failing to deal with. I completely agree. And I also do completely agree that uh, 90s football was far superior to what we see today. Um, and if I can, if I can be a little bit facetious here, I think there's possibly a parallel to be drawn between, you know, the professional structures of American liberal opinion making and the ongoing, the continuing career of Wayne Carey, despite all the evidence that he is not only a rotten human being, but also a terrible football commentator. So, yeah, I think, I think, I think, yes, absolutely. The 90s, you know, perhaps in the case of football, there is a case for the 1990s to be revived in some ways and to be left behind in others. 
Um, another subject on which I think that's that's maybe a, a point to be made is the internet. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and as you said, you know, we've spoken about that a bit. But what comes to mind in particular here is um, the writing of, you know, for example, Roxanne Gay, um, when she writes about the internet of the 1990s being actually kind of a safe space compared to what it is today, or just, a, a, I suppose, a totally different universe in the 1990s. Yeah, I think... And I think that's worth reflecting on because, you know, we've, we've kind of, in this, this episode, we've been talking about events in the early 2000s and we've kind of been skirting around the reinvigoration of the American military-industrial complex around the time of September 11. And that connects quite directly to, I guess, the, the trajectory of the internet from, you know, this sort of this 90s democratic vision of what the internet could be and this kind of tech utopianism to what the internet now, which is basically, you know, a hellfire. Um, I think it's interesting that, you know, today we often see people talking about tech monopolies and what the scholar Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism as kind of the inevitable outcomes of the internet and the fact that the internet is dominated by a handful of unhinged and socially maladjusted bros like Mark Zuckerberg. Um, But... You know, if we think about what Roxanne Gay writes about and, you know, these really hopeful aspirations for the internet, it really does bring to mind for me the historical contingency of, you know, that development where the where the internet has kind of evolved into the absolute mess that it is today. Um, Zuboff writes about this in the age of surveillance capitalism and how tech entrepreneurs got heavily involved in the expansion and development of defence capability and the defence industry in the early 2000s. And that's part of one of the that's part of the reason why tech is now against us. So I guess what I'm saying is that the history of the internet is highly contingent. It's highly contingent on those events in the early 2000s that we've talked about in this episode. And I do retain, I guess, some hope that we might be able to return to those very democratic aspirations of the 1990s. It's a slim hope, but it's there. And look, I think, you know, maybe you can kind of see some of that hope for the for the best bits of the 1990s to, to continue on in in the sort of cultural revival that we're seeing of the 1990s at the moment. You know, particularly, I think, as people are in, in lockdown, they're turning to those kind of reassuring moments of the 1990s. So I'm thinking in particular, Chloe, of things like the remake of The Babysitter's Club, yeah, which I, is enormously popular. I, I spent way too much time watching that a couple of weekends ago. Yeah, but I guess... I guess there's always, you know, nostalgia is a double-edged sword because, yeah, absolutely, there are things to be taken comfort in. But I hope that what one thing we might have achieved with this, with this podcast is to, I guess, rebuff some of those, those delusions about the 1990s. I mean, I wouldn't want to... I, I, I think that, you know, Christy Thomas in The Babysitter's Club is kind of an exemplar of, lean, of early lean-in feminism and I certainly wouldn't want her to be my boss these days. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, we we do have to remember that those, you know, seemingly, I guess, safe cultural spaces of the 1990s are also pretty fraught because, you know, as you just said, Chloe, there's that about the Babysitter's Club, but I'm also thinking about people like Joe Rogan, the kind of podcasting mogul who's also started in the 1990s in the sitcom news radio and he's now kind of the exemplar I guess of everything that's wrong with podcasting and the internet um but maybe that's just my jealousy speaking Chloe that you know we want to be the the podcasting moguls instead of Joe Rogan we're gonna I don't I I don't Um, think that's gonna happen Em as long as our MO is you know ruining people's childhoods 
You never know. Spotify might offer us a, offer us a multi-billion-dollar deal. Hold out hope. <laughs> um, I think another way in which you know, so the '90s, if the '90s are still with us, one of the really rude awakenings that we've had, we've had in, and I guess one of the unexpected legacies for anyone who is labouring under the impression that the '90s was some kind of peaceful throwback democracy, is in the return of extremely violent police repression in the last month or so. Yeah, totally. And I, I think particularly, um, I, I think what you're thinking about here at Chloe is Seattle, particularly the way that violent policing has been, I guess, exposed to comfortable white people um, in a way that it was, I suppose, in that moment at the end of the 1990s. And that is is happening again in, in I guess, kind of the legacies of things like the, the Patriot Act and, and what we're seeing is the, I guess, the militarisation of Western states, Western, Western nascent states against domestic protests. So I'm thinking here again of what's happening in Portland, in Oregon, of Black Lives Matters protests. But even, you know, I guess the response here at home to, to COVID-19 and the kind of militarisation and policing of even state borders, you know, the, the, the apparatus that allows that to happen is kind of built in the late 1990s and, and the post 9-11 world. But I think, I guess one of the other it's kind of related, but one of the other hang-ups that we still have from the 1990s, I think, is is something that we spoke about really early on in this series, Chloe, and that's the the legacy of the so-called third way or the the new Democrats and the kind of technocratic approach to, to liberal politics. And one of the questions I think that a lot of people are asking at the moment is whether the third way is is finally done. Is it over? Well, I... I... I hope it is. I don't know that it is. I think, you know, the signs the signs aren't good, for instance, in the UK, where Keir Starmer seems to be tacking a very clear path back to sensible centrism by contrast with the radical the radicalism of the Corbyn years in UK Labour. I think the fact that Joe Biden is now the presumptive nominee for the Democratic Party nomination for the presidency in the upcoming election, I think that says that the third way isn't quite over. I think this is of all the you know the hang-ups and the legacies of the 90s that are still with us this is the one that needs to be sorted out urgently and I think that but at the same time I also think that people are talking too much about what the left needs to do and I'm talking about the properly socialist left not liberals who call themselves leftists too much is too much is being said about the failure of the left in the Corbyn and the Sanders experiments from 2015 onwards. Not enough is being said about the role of liberals in their failure. And I think that liberals, and by that I'm talking about people for whom, you know, freedom, basic rights, fundamental freedoms, and, you know, that I guess at the very least a comfort with capitalism defines their politics. They're the ones who need to get their house in order if they are go if they are going to call themselves progressives. They need to stop pretending that, you know, this sort of their default successes over the past few years. So I'm talking about things like Hillary Clinton's nomination um, and Joe Biden's taking the nomination in the in the upcoming presidential election. They need to stop pretending that those sort of default successes are vindication for their programs because they are not adequate to meet the challenges of our time. I think that, you know, I guess what I'm saying is that liberal confidence is a hangover from the 1990s and it's one that we need to get over urgently because that is what's strangling progressive politics today. 
and I think is also strangling our ability, um, our collective ability to see what is really happening in the world. Chloe, you know, you spoke about crisis and we've spoken t- together a lot about fascism. And I think one of the, the hangups of the liberal 1990s is the failure to really see, I suppose, the rise, the creeping rise of fascism, particularly in the United States, because of this liberal triumphalism kind of hangover. And look, maybe that is starting to change as the reality of the kind of multiple crises that particularly the United States is in makes adhering to that kind of liberal triumphalism increasingly difficult. Um, because what we are potentially seeing at the moment, I think, is is the end of, of US hegemony and potentially the collapse of the American empire, which is completely unthinkable at the beginning of the 1990s. And I suppose that, you know, if if this podcast has been about exploring this concept of the, of the long 1990s, then they really are our bookends. You know, the 90s open in this moment of seeming seeming American, liberal triumph and specifically American triumph. We're now in the middle of 2020 and that is, it's been faltering for a long time, but I think that we are perhaps really seeing the end of American global dominance. Which I suppose leads me in a way to, to the, the final question, Chloe, as, as we wrap up, which is... Was Vanilla Ice right to say that the 1990s was the last of the great decades? Well, no, I don't think Vanilla Ice was right about the 1990s, but I do, I do retain a lot of affection for certain cultural artifacts of the 1990s. I'm thinking of, you know, Colin Firth's hair there. Um, but I would say more seriously that the, the 90s, it has, it has an absolutely has a mixed legacy. There was a lot of good stuff that was going on that, you know, and good things that have been resumed in, you know, our present crisis. You know, we couldn't, I don't think we could have the protest movements of today if they didn't have, you know, their stubborn, these stubborn legacies and, you know, the failures of the 1990s to draw on. But I think in general, the 1990s would have a better chance of being remembered well if we would just finally let them die. Well, look, I don't know if I wanted to die completely. Like I was thinking last night about our kind of ongoing discussion of music and particularly women in music. And and the way that I don't want the 1990s to die is in the, the revival of 90s fashion and the kind of liberation that comes from like wearing mum jeans and baggy t-shirts and, and flannel shirts and not caring about hair and perfect makeup. Um, that is something that I love about the 1990s and I hope will hang around. But as far as everything that you were just saying, Chloe, about liberal triumphalism, I, I definitely think it is time for that to go. And and from another totally self-interested perspective, you know, we've spoken a lot about the path from um, giving a lecture to writing an article to, to writing a book. I'm kind of hopeful that this process for us will kind of play out in the making a, co- a podcast and then writing a book together. Look, I don't know. I've spent enough time with you over the last few weeks. I think we probably need a bit of a break from each other. And if it's any comfort, Emma, I think we are definitely in a new age of mum jeans and baggy t-shirts and flannelettes now that we're all stuck inside our homes because of COVID. So I think that's our last word on the 1990s for now. Um, but I think we also we, we also do have to thank a number of people who've been very supportive of the podcast throughout this quite dramatic period where we've been stuck inside 
with ad hoc equipment and constant technical stuff ups. Um, so of course, thank you to RMIT University for supporting and producing the podcast. And, and also to the European Union Centre of Excellence in the Social and Global Studies Centre here well, not here, but at RMIT University, who have supported our endeavours in in doing this podcast as well. Um, And in particular, we'd like to thank at RMIT um, Amelia, Grace, Darcy and Sarah, who have worked really hard on this podcast from the very beginning. And... I think the last the last thank you has to go to our long suffer the long suffering Peter Clark, who is responsible for doing most of the production work on the podcast and is always there at about four thirty on a Wednesday afternoon to save us from ourselves and our technical stuff ups. Yes, so thank you, Pete, and thank you so much for listening to this second series of Barely Getting By. We will be back. We're not exactly sure when or in what form, but we will come back hopefully in not too long. Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original music by Stuart Cullen. Alright. Oh my god, sorry Pete. Stopping now. <laughs>